Welcome to Start By Listening, the podcast about sexual harm and trauma. We are centered on educating and empowering our Western Kentucky communities. Our goal is to transform the way we talk about sexual harm and trauma. Transformation begins by listening to understand. We talk so you can listen today and change the world tomorrow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Start By Listening. It's Jennifer, a.k.a. The Friendly Therapist, and here with my PSE. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Start By Listening. It's Shelby. We're so excited to be here with you. New season. Um, same year, but it's new season. <laughs> it's, it's like a school year, you know? It is like a school year. Mm-hmm. We passed. Yay! <laughs> Upgrade. Season four. Season four. Level four, grade four. Wow. Well, we're so excited to be here today, and we have in our studio, aka my office, (laughs) um, an amazing person, and you guys might remember her voice. You might not have seen her face, but you might remember her voice. We have with us the esteemed and lovely Terry Crow, and she was the original co-creator of Start By Listening, and so we're going to turn it over to Terry and let her introduce herself. Welcome, Terry. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here in the studio. <laughs> um, so just a little bit about me, I guess. I'm Terry Crow. Um, I am a victim advocate. I spent many years, and I'm still here at New Beginnings. I've worn many hats here at New Beginnings. I started as a volunteer, then I was the assistant to the volunteer coordinator, then I was an advocate on staff, and now I'm on the board. Um, So I'm still involved with New Beginnings. And so um, I spent a couple of years working on a sexual assault, domestic violence um, stalking grant at a local university. Uh, And then when that ended, I switched um, to work at Oasis. So I'm currently attempting to learn and make a difference on the domestic violence side. So I'm an advocate who's kind of touring the advocacy opportunities around uh, Owensboro and the region, I guess. So that's a little bit about me. You have been around the world Mm -hmm. with advocacy, Mm -hmm. sexual assault, and now domestic violence, and they are definitely intersections. That's what I was going to say is one of the most important things I want to express in this podcast and in my work and advocacy is that interpersonal violence, although New Beginnings is a standalone agency, Oasis is a standalone agency, the overlap in this field is tremendous between domestic or among domestic violence. Um, sexual violence and stalking. It's hard sometimes to pull those apart because they Mm co-occur so, so, so frequently. They really do. So while I've kind of done the tour to advocacy around, you know, uh, Owensboro to get various experiences and, and knowledge and whatnot, it's all so similar that it's on the one hand, fascinating from a work perspective, but also very disturbing. It is. Um, and October, which we are now in October, is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. I think across the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I know that, uh, of course, this will be released after, but you guys are having a vigil mm-hmm. this evening. Mm-hmm. Um, what has it been like for you to move from the world of sexual assault and advocacy into the world of domestic violence and advocacy? It's been different, but it's been the same. Because I work in the non-residential side of OASIS. So on the non-residential side, we provide court advocacy to assist people through the protective order process, custody, child support, criminal side, anything that's connected with that domestic violence, we can provide court accompaniment or other supportive services and information and safety planning regarding all that. And that's very similar to what I'm accustomed to to doing uh, for so long at New Beginnings. Mm -hmm. What is different is that at New Beginnings, we're working primarily with people um, who are stably housed, not always, but by and large, the clients are stably housed in some way. It may not necessarily be ideal, but... um, And many of our clients at New Beginnings need a lot of case management and they have a lot of needs, but Oasis clients, because there's the shelter portion that I don't work in, um, but we offer shelter, emergency shelter, relocation assistance with funding to relocate people on an emergency basis to another town or another state. Um, There's transitional housing when people are ready to sort of move out of the shelter setting into more independent living like an apartment or a single family home. People are are literally much more in different ways in survival mode through Oasis because many are not stably housed. Many do not have Uh, the benefits they need in terms of insurance or disability benefits. There's a larger amount of the the clients who are struggling with addictions. Again, these are all things that New Beginnings clients struggle with, but it's it's like looking through, I don't know, a kaleidoscope or something with just a slightly different view. So it's really, really, really similar, but more intense in some ways because the needs are so literally many times about survival. I just spoke with a person yesterday who was currently living basically in a lean-to next to someone's house. Um, And so... They have shelter, but it's like camping. And many of our clients have needs like that where, where do you start? You know, we can't start sometimes with domestic violence issues because the person doesn't have even the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs met yet. So we can't even help them process their, process their trauma or deal with court stuff if they're living in a lean-to because they have no place else to go due to domestic violence or other factors. So that's a roundabout way to, I guess, or a long way to answer your question is that it's, it's so, so similar 
because of trauma responses and because of the overlap and the comorbidity, so to speak, of DV, SA, and stalking happening together, it's like I already know all the clients at Oasis. Not literally, but I've worked with so many through new beginnings that it's so similar. You know, as you were talking about, you know, the intensity level of, of needs, and you spoke about a person like living in a ring to like, I was like, whoa, I mean, that's heavy. Like I, I can tell you, I've never had a client, you know, in mm-hmm. therapy that has not had a stable housing thus far. Yes. And the, the needs of rural clients in particular, because we offer advocacy throughout the grad region, the Green River Area Development District, the seven county region, there are so many barriers to receiving services from a place like New Beginnings or Oasis, mm-hmm. but also so many barriers to getting help for domestic violence issues in particular because some people, they don't have internet where they live. They barely have a home. You know, it's, it's just sort of a very simple structure way out in the country, some clients. Some clients are almost trapped literally from that rural setting, but also figuratively because they maybe they've lost their disability benefits because mm-hmm. they couldn't manage their own needs in some way. And so the, the benefits lapsed or the benefits were removed or the, they don't have health insurance, but they have a disability. And there's a lot of case management uh, for emergent or emergency needs, including housing. And it, that's the part, it's the intensity of that that blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I knew things existed. I knew, I, you know, people have all kinds of needs. But when you come face-to-face with it, literally with a client in court who's trying to get a protective order, and they live out in the middle of a teeny tiny little hamlet in one of the counties, and it's taken them everything to get in there. And this is the, I had a client tell me recently in court, this is, I've, I've never stood up for 10 years, multiple children, 10 years. And it gives me chills just to have the honor to help this person. And they said, you know, it's been 10 years and this is the first time I've stood up and said no and filed a protective order. And they overcame numerous barriers. Um, so it's just, that intensity at first kind of blew me over. Like, okay, we can't, I can't educate you about domestic violence or help you with this protective work because you've no, you literally have no place to live. So let's talk to the person at Oasis who assists with emergency funding. Sometimes we have um, discretionary funding from different federal grants. Um, that we can use with clients to help them pay attorney's fees if they can't be represented by Kentucky Legal Aid. Um, sometimes we have emergency funding for housing or a hotel room, like let's just get you off the street. Um, so it's just, it's, you know, so it's, 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 I feel like I'm sort of talking out of both sides of my mouth to a certain extent about knowing the client because they're so similar between the two agencies of my previous work, but the intensity is just next level. 
because of the intensity of domestic violence and the intensity and the frequency of those barriers to service. But just like sexual trauma, the, but even more in some ways with domestic violence, the intergenerational nature, it's like massive. Because if you experience the DV and you live in a rural area and you don't have access to services and you're physically and geographically isolated, that goes back generations. And it's, it's a lot. It's a heavy, heavy lift that we're honored and happy to help clients with. But it is a tremendous amount of mitigating damage through many generations of domestic violence. Wow. That, it's a lot. Cause that I mean, because I know court and I know, you know, working with clients who are stably housed, and that's literally um on the old stat system that we use, there's lots of data that we're trying to capture for Zero V, which is the state coalition for domestic violence, as well as the funders like VOCA and VAWA. Um, but literally, there's a selection, a drop-down menu to describe the housing status of a client. And it's five or six tiers of housing. And that's literally one of them we can select is stably housed, imminent risk of being homeless, homeless. You know, there's all kinds of, of data that we're trying to grapple with, so to speak, and help people. That's just, I mean... Like sitting here and listening to you explain that, um, it makes sense now why um, some people take months to get stably housed. And it can be, yes, it can take days, it could take weeks, it could take months. I've worked with clients at Oasis who have had special payments, uh, funding sources, or special vouchers through through Social Security, mm-hmm. disability benefits. Um, in fact, I just spoke with someone recently that um, was on a waiting list, living stably housed but very underhoused, and then was on this waiting list for stable, um, some stable housing, but when the stable housing opportunity came up and it was their turn on the list, the the dwelling where they were going to go live, they still have to wait for it because as the inspection came through, they discovered some structural things, you know, that needed maintenance. So this person is still waiting. So sometimes it's waiting for the funding to come through. Sometimes it's waiting to be approved for something through the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. Sometimes it's waiting for something like this maintenance issue that you can't live in this dwelling unless you have proper plumbing and proper electricity. And this client that I spoke to was just in tears. I've been waiting for this for weeks. I've been living with these other people. They're driving me crazy. I'm not really close to them. This is not good. Um, and this property finally came available and they still have to wait 
fit because they literally can't live in this yet because it's got to be fixed. And so it's just, and that's on top of escaping domestic violence and waiting maybe in shelter before they got to that person's home or who knows what that journey has been for most of, of or many of these clients. It's a lot because you cannot function or process or be happy or safe if you don't have that bottom housing and food and shelter. And I was not accustomed to that really working through new beginnings at Oasis. I was like, oh, this is next level advocacy. Yeah. And I don't even work on the shelter side. I work in non-residential. So I'm working with clients that are either calling, that kind of come through my line uh, fairly infrequently to talk to them to do a crisis call by phone. Mm-hmm. But I'm primarily working with clients through court. And once you open that box and that somebody needs a protective order, once you open that box with a client and move through that court process with them, so much is in that box to pull out and look at and do a life case management with. That is a next level. I think, let's say I've been here seven years now, maybe. I always try. But I think in all of my time here, I've had maybe one or two clients mm-hmm. that required so much case management before I could even begin therapy. Yes. And I remember several clients as well, and it was just a matter of getting them emotionally stable, physically stable, getting resources, referrals that they needed until they could get to the point that they could even begin to think about focusing on processing you know, with a therapist and, you know, uh, clients at Oasis, there are some that are farther along on that continuum or they've already um, worked with someone to build their skills to fulfill that base level of, you know, needs. But so many have been living through no fault of their own originally, this intergenerational domestic violence, sexual trauma, and stalking, and people don't even realize they're not even naming it as stalking, but that's what's happening. It's, it's a whole lot just by itself. And then you add in housing barriers and then utilizing um, substances to manage uh, pre existing trauma, current trauma, and then it becomes it's cliche, but it becomes a cycle. And that's part of our job is to help clients walk that path, not do it for them, but help walk the path to to survivorship, so to speak. If I'm asking too many questions, you tell me to hush it, but I'm, I'm like enthralled. No. <laughs> so I'm curious. You talked about like just being in this survival mode, right? Like trying to get basic needs met. And I'm curious, what have you noticed as far as like in patterns or observations of what does existing in that level of survival, what does that do to um, someone's nervous system, 
what does that do to their um, spirit? You know, what does that do to just them I think as a I think it's I think it's global damage. Um, I think it affects every aspect of a person's life, their ability to work, their ability to achieve academically, um, their ability to have healthy relationships and recognize, you know, healthy relationships or unhealthy relationships. I think it impairs and stunts people's development as children and as as adults. And I've observed and noticed similar things to um, sexual trauma survivors, but even more in some ways. It, you know, we know this through the ACEs. We know that, you know, the more ACEs you have, the more likely you are to have certain maladaptive coping mechanisms and certain um, uh, health issues, and it can decrease the lifespan by up to 20 years or so. And so what I see in clients just with my eyes, just looking at physicality and physical characteristics and what I hear them talk about, I hear as a rule, there are always exceptions to this, but as a rule, generally speaking, the domestic violence and um, often, but not always, the substance abuse or the maladaptive coping, I see people that are full of grace and honor and strength and resilience and perseverance to have literally, literally survived Mm -hmm. some of these situations. The things I have heard in court about what the offender or in terms of the protective order process, the respondent Mm -hmm. has done Mm -hmm. to threaten I thought I'd heard it all through sex crimes court, through district and circuit court, but family court, again, next level, some of the things people have survived. Mm -hmm. And so although the clients I see as tremendously resilient, it has taken a toll. Mm -hmm. They appear often, because we know this, older than they actually are. So I see a lot of aging before it's time to age or accelerated aging in some ways. And I think we know that through some DNA studies and whatnot, the effects of toxic stress and domestic violence. Um, So I see that aging. I see people that are tired. I see people. I had another uh, a colleague at Oasis describe that when people come into shelter and I don't work on the shelter side. I see people getting it together enough to come to court. Um, But through the domestic violence and that chronic hypervigilance, through something that they've recently experienced and had to be on guard for, Mm -hmm. or a lifetime of that, Mm -hmm. mixed with sometimes the substance use issues, um, that... I've been told by um, housing and shelter staff that sometimes the clients will come in and they will sleep and they will sleep and they will sleep and they will sleep because their body, their nervous system is worn out. Mm -hmm. It's old before it's time. They're often dealing with chronic illnesses like rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, 
the effects of strangulation, which we haven't even gotten to in this discussion, but that can cause chronic issues even years or decades later in terms of stroke and seizure disorders and whatnot. So I see physically people look tired, they look older than their biological year, and I see chronic illnesses almost across the board. Yeah. What you've described, I think, is truly um, the horrific um, trickle-down effects of what it means to, to live in trauma. And it's so crucial that we get... We in this field are doing so many prevention efforts. We have to do more and intervene earlier and earlier with children for sexual trauma, domestic violence, um, and stalking, all those, you know, interpersonal harms. Um, because the damage, I'm seeing it in a, in a, again, just sort of through a different lens in a slightly different way, working with a slightly different population of survivors. The damage is incalculable it's just but then having said that people are super resilient and there are people that have been through hell like living in trucks living in cars to get away from an abuser Um, clients that have been abused in cars and campers with all manner of weapons being threatened and to survive that and many times thrive and be kind to others still. The human spirit is amazing. So I see that too. I see not only the aging and the chronic illnesses and sometimes a sense of learned helplessness through generation after generation of victimhood, so to speak. Um, I see that too. Um, Lack of ability to even understand that they have a voice. We had a client who was in some transitional housing, so living a bit more independently than shelter, and not accessing, and it was this gentleman, and we do provide services to all genders. People think we're a women's shelter. We're not. We certainly provide services to all, uh, all genders. Um, this gentleman was younger, hadn't had as much experience, had a lifetime of trauma, and didn't really realize that he had the voice and didn't have the skill or the sense of, I have a right to say there's something wrong in my apartment. So this man was using, there was a problem with the the bathroom, and he couldn't use the commode and uh, for personal hygiene needs. And so he was going to various um, fast food restaurants or gas stations to go and use the bathroom throughout the day and night. And when eventually, you know, it was worked through about some of that, that It was basically a matter of lack of voice and choice, realizing I I can say something 
because I have a right to have a bathroom um, and I have a right to say something to, to meet my personal needs and to know how to communicate that um, and to realize that not all conflict is abusive. So this man, through a childhood and an adulthood of chronic domestic violence, and, and I'm sure other types of abuse are likely, um, was not getting his literal physical needs met because he didn't know how to speak up. He didn't think he was worthy and didn't want to cause uh, uh, make waves because that's how he'd been living for years. Yeah. See, and I love that, and I want to talk more about that because you mentioned prevention and you mentioned the generational trauma that comes with domestic violence. And when you're raised in that type of environment and you don't know anything mm-hmm. else, violence is normal. Mm-hmm. Like uh, people scream, people hit, this is how you solve problems. Mm-hmm. It's choking, it's not strangling, that's something that happens. It happens, that's casual. That's yeah. okay. These things are fine. He choked me out, but you know, I don't think I passed out too bad, so I think it's okay. And it's just so yes. I'm curious about um, I don't know what if um, Oasis does any violence prevention. I know here at um, New Beginnings, we do Green Dot um, and we do MySpace and Play It Safe. And we're going to talk about prevention programs later. But I'm curious what prevention looks like for you. Because, again, teaching kiddos that they can have a voice mm-hmm. so they don't become full-grown adults, repeating these cycles, feeling that they don't have a voice. Like, how... How do we do it, Terry? Solve the world problems. Okay, well, no problem. Thanks, Shelby. <laughs> um, no problem. I got you. Um, Spotlight. Yeah. <laughs> and no. Uh, I think, from my perspective as an advocate, it has to begin with our culture in this country. I think it starts with teaching children what healthy boundaries are, healthy sexuality, healthy relationships, unhealthy relationships, red flags, green flags. I also think, and I'm just, this is off the cuff, so this is going to be very stream of consciousness, as if the rest of my stuff hasn't been <laughs> also stream of consciousness, but I'll just continue to riff. Um, I think that we don't just, we don't even talk about healthy relationships or healthy sexuality or emotion in this country, broadly speaking. I think it's better than when I was a child um, growing up in the 70s and 80s. We've come a long way, especially with general emotions and general emotional identification and emotional regulation. I think we're getting there. And with the sexual and domestic violence prevention and response, I think we've come a long way, but I still think that it starts, it starts from the very basic. I mean, I guess maybe we need a new Maslow's hierarchy of needs, maybe where we put at the bottom, I can identify my emotions. I can identify how my body feels in relation to my emotions and various stimuli. So the body physical, somatic intelligence to be in touch with one's body, one's emotions, and that they're connected. 
and that when we have needs, we we can explain those using, you know, I feel sad because X, Y, and Z, or I felt afraid. I think it starts from a sense of bodily autonomy, the right to have voice and choice, and culturally talking about that stuff more and creating a culture where it's no longer in many family systems or whatever. You don't talk back to grown-ups because that's disrespect. That's the genesis. Or we don't talk about your sexual parts and we just give them nicknames. So that's your poo bear down there. We don't talk about it because that's nasty. I think it starts from the, the family culture, the the culture of the town, the city, and it goes from the micro to the macro and the macro down to the micro. From the basics, from the time that children are young, to give them the words and the permission, you can say no to an adult. You can understand what your body parts are and that nobody's got the right to touch you in any way that makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, to have the words to say that, I think prevention starts from little bitties. And we work well and while I'm riffing. I think that the therapy world, and I'm an advocate, crisis counselor, y'all are the therapist. But from where I sit, the therapy world and the DCBS world is pretty good about this, um, the cabinet. And I think people try, but I think therapy expectations and case management and um, prevention planning and all of those things really, really somehow need to pull in and include a requirement, which takes away some choice. For parents, but a lot of times I know that at New Beginnings and Oasis, we're doing work with children and we're working and we're planting seeds and we're modeling healthy communication and healthy boundaries and we're playing boundaries baseball game and we're playing, you know, various games at, you know, Oasis and we're trying to teach all this stuff. And then they're living in a system, a family system that's toxic where the family is doing the best they can to live, but they don't know how because this goes back generation after generation. So a lot of times, you know, you see a client for an hour once or a week. Somehow, a key, one of the keys to this from my perspective is more family systems work, more you can't require somebody to go to therapy per se, but I see so much of the intergenerational stuff over the many years I've been doing this that the parent is doing the best they can, but they aren't even healthy themselves, yes. let alone trying to raise a healthy child. And they love their children. They're doing the very level best they can, but they've never been taught. That grandparent has never been taught. That grand, it goes backward. If you could take an old-timey film strip, like in school when I was in school, and you rewind that film strip, this goes back generations. And so somehow we have to be creative in empowering and assisting people, parents and caregivers, 
because there's a lot of kinship care in Kentucky and a lot of, um, uh, oh, I can never remember the term where it's kinship and there's another term when people that are like family take care of children, but they're not family. There's a word for that. Anyway, people all by themselves need to be able to heal for their own needs so they can be happier and healthier. But if we're expecting to have a healthier state and a healthier country and a healthier Congress and a healthier political system and a healthier social media environment and everything, we have to somehow encourage and empower people who are caregivers to be like trauma stewardship. As professional providers, we can't do anybody right fully unless we're mindful of our own trauma. And for parents, how can we continue to put people, children, in the care of people that aren't able? They might be willing. There has to be a way to add that in as a piece of this. But how do you do that and retain voice and choice for caregivers? Yeah. Well, I like that you said from the micro to the macro and the macro to the micro because it really does start with family systems and working its way out. And luckily, not therapists, yeah, but in practice, <laughs> um, one of the main reasons why I really love getting to do my practicum here at New Beginnings is the holistic approach we take to treatment. And that is one of the first things that I talked with the clinical coordinator about, Becky, was it, we can't do everything in session. We can't do everything in an hour. If we don't get the families involved, what progress are we actually going to make? Um, So I like that we take that approach here and I think it's important and I agree with everything you said. I'm curious because I'm getting overwhelmed just sitting here thinking about all the work that needs done because I agree with it and I love the mindset and I think that is what needs done and I want to work towards it. But how? Without without getting burnout because I'm, uh, I'm burning out just thinking about we it. Have such a culture of trauma in this state for lots of different reasons and nationwide and worldwide. It's part of the human condition to greater or lesser degrees. And there are times that I love this field. I love helping people you know, on that walk through recovery and healing. But there are times you all, and I hope this doesn't sound disrespectful to any client because I would never want to give that impression. It's more just of the problem as a whole that you alluded to. There are times that it feels like we are as a field, Like, okay, we're all advocates, social workers, therapists, law enforcement, child protect, you know, whoever those roles are. We're all on the Titanic, and we are sinking, and we've all got little teaspoons. And we're all like, just just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. We're going to keep this ship from sinking. If it's the last thing we do, if we all get our teaspoons and we just, we can do it. It feels so huge, Mm -hmm. and I don't know how. I wish I know how theoretically, logistically, and consent wise and voice and choice for care. How I don't know, Shelby. That's that's the key because, like, if you look at other countries, like the United States has um, one of the highest infant mortality rates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
lack of health care. And we touched on this earlier. We were talking about getting people their basic needs and their housing met. What the housing market right now is absolutely insane. Fifteen hundred dollars a month for rent in Owensboro, Kentucky. That Who can afford out. that? You can't. No one. No one working. So we're working yeah. slave wages. I say we're collectively, but that's because we are as a society when the majority of people are not able to survive. And failing. and people are told through messaging and implicit and explicit ways, listen, if you just did better and you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you tried harder, mm-hmm. and that's not it at You've all. gotten yourself into this position. Yeah. I'm a self-made person. Why can't you do it? And it's so misinformed for what we know the realities are of yes. the nervous system. Trauma, intergenerational trauma, etc. It just isn't that simple. Mm-hmm. So many times... Um, you know, I have parents that come in and they'll say, I just want you to fix my kid. And so that gives an opportunity to have a difficult conversation and to let families and parents know that you're part of this equation. And so the only way that therapy is truly going to work and be beneficial is if you are in your therapy too. Not only do you need to be in therapy, but these are the things that have to change in your home. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, U, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Yes. Now, here's the beauty. You don't have to make all these changes today, but I need you to understand this is where we need to start heading. If, you know, you truly do want to do the best that you can. Yes. And when I think about where it needs to begin, and I do not see, I do not see, I said wrong thing. I don't see our society ever doing this, uh, which makes me sad. Um, But it needs to begin from the moment um, that someone enters the doors of a doctor's office and um, they are pregnant. And it needs to begin with classes and information. Now, again, it's not about consent, like you said, because this is not about voice and choice. Sometimes in order for transformation to occur, we want it to be a willing thing, but sometimes people have to drag us kicking and screaming. That's true. Um, And you have to think about short-term, long-term. And it brings in the existential, like, what is best for the individual versus the greater good and the society, and you get those kind of ethical oh, discussions as absolutely. well. So then when we go beyond that, though, and we start to think about, and here's the truth of the matter, um, it is not the education system's responsibility, nor was it built mm-hmm. to be therapy. Mm-hmm. Or it's even not, education for interpersonal. It was never designed. It's not the healthcare's responsibility. It's, it's just not, they, that's not their wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Right, like so. If we think about lifting up people in the professions and positions they are, and what they're good at doing, right? That's what we need. But we don't have in our society. We don't have enough advocates. We don't have enough therapists. We don't have enough group coordinators. Right. We don't have the ability to, to well do. And people mention frequently. 
when I worked at New Beginnings, and I hear it sometimes in relation to board stuff, now that I'm on the board, and now at Oasis, people are asking, do you have a support group? Do you have a therapy group? Do you have a support group? Do you have education that we can come and do in a group, but then people don't come. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is linked to, kind of Shelby, what you alluded to yesterday, sort of the and then we're getting into even broader macro levels, you know, I think it's connected to sort of this sense of what some people might label toxic capitalism or the need to work yourself to death just to survive. So how can you come to the DV shelter or the rape crisis center, even virtually to have the time to do those sorts of things when you're just trying to put food on the table? You can't. There are only 24 hours in a day, and 8 to 10 are spent working for most people, not all. And then you're supposed to exercise an hour a day, and then you've got parent-teacher conferences to go to, and you're you're carrying all of this trauma luggage with you and trying to function on a daily basis. And we just don't really have the infrastructure in terms of you know, how can we make it sort of more accessible to become an advocate or a therapist or a group coordinator or an educator? And how do we make it accessible beyond the school system? And we make it, this is just our culture around here that we take care of our emotions and our people. Um, It's an entire paradigm shift that is huge. And we come back to the Titanic analogy, like we're just keep growing. I think I see progress. And part of the trauma stewardship, and this is, I guess, maybe the dirty little secret, especially in social work, that nobody really wants to talk about, but it is the truth. Part of trauma stewardship is knowing I'm only one person. Yes. And I sure. only have a small amount of energy every day to give to other people because I, have to give to myself. Yeah, I have to give to my family. Mm-hmm. I have to give to other people that are in my little boat too. Yes, and so we can only do so. I learned much. that years ago as an advocate because yes. I would say to myself at the end of every day when I was a new advocate, "Okay, I'm done what I can, you know, with clients today, and I've done what I can for my stats today, and." That's all I can do. And I would say that to myself, but it wasn't really working because there was always more I could do, or there was always more that I could stat, or I could stat more that day. I'm like, oh, I'm still behind. So long ago, I got into the practice. I realized I needed to put this into my body and make it physical because the words to myself were not cutting it. So I still, to this day, you know, 10 year, 10-ish years later, At the end of every day, you know, I take the papers or whatever I've got on my desk and I kind of scooch them together to make them a little bit neater. I close my laptop and I have my emotional support pen that I use that I like that helps part of my self-care. I put that down in a little stack and I have a paperweight that I put on top of all that. And I literally say to myself, I have done what I can. I cannot physically do anymore. And I put the paperweight down. And then I walk away and somehow over the years, that physical reminder to finish my work that day and ka-chunk my paperweight, that stone down on that paper, somehow, I don't know if it's my nervous system, Jennifer, I don't know if it's just the habit, 
it. Yeah. But that has helped somehow. It helps signal my brain, I can't do no more today. And if I do, I'm going to fall apart or I'm going to be stressed or this is going to bleed over into my personal life. So somehow saying those words and having that physical, like here's my actual physical work that I've been working on, boom, with the paperweight, my body responds to that for some reason. Because otherwise, I'd be like, we're in the titanic wall, and we're passing out life jackets, we're spooning out the water. Like, what are we going to do? We'll just keep spooning. Where are the life, let's just, there's some robots over here, let's, let's put a few people in, that's how it feels to me. But at the end of the day, I can only do, yep, but flip side of that is a couple of weeks ago, I was at Kroger standing in line for the self-check. I'm just like in my own world. And a person came up to me at Kroger and said, are you here to get this? And I said, well, I'm still on the board, um, but I've moved on to another advocacy experience or whatever and this person said years ago I saw you and you told me um or you asked me the question did you ever consider that what you're experiencing emotionally and behaviorally is normal and that you're actually normal have you ever thought about that that you're normal based on what you've been through she said that blew my mind it gives me chills Mm -hmm. um it blew my mind and I just wanted you to know how much that helped me Mm-hmm. And that's how I know that we've all had experience. I'm not unique. We've all had experiences in town where people stop us or in other communities, you know, wherever um, in our region. We've all had those experiences where some, uh, you know, a former client or survivor approaches us and says, thank you. Mm-hmm. Or I never realized this. With all, And that's how I know we make a difference. One of the ways I know we make a difference in the Titanic. Yeah. And we, I think it comes down to, for me personally, at the end of every day, I know that I've done what I can. And there are people I will never be able to help. Mm-hmm. Not because I don't want to help, but I, I am one person in this huge system. Mm-hmm. And I just know that not everybody is going to get what they need. Um, and that is something... That's also one of those things within social work as well. Um, and it's just the truth of the matter. And you never, yeah, and you never know, maybe it's not the connection that they need right then. You're not their person. Right. Maybe they're not ready to look hard and be willing to do the self. Like, yeah, my coping skills and boundaries kind of stink. Maybe I guess <laughs> they're not ready to look internally and That's deal okay. with that discomfort. Maybe it's just not their time because the journey to through that healing is lifelong. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I tell my clients, you know, to come to therapy um, and to do the work is a pure act of rebellion in today's society mm-hmm. because 90% of people, they don't want to. Mm-hmm. And they just want to be ostriches and they want to disassociate and run. And because numbing feels good. It's, this it's, is feels good. This mm-hmm. is going to sound like it doesn't apply, but I promise it does. Do you all like drag? Do you know any drag queens? Like, 
My favorite one that I've discovered is Trixie Mattel, very famous drag queen, one RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, I follow her on everything she does. I just love the character, and I love um, Brian Furcus, who is who is Trixie Mattel. Um, and um, she actually released one of her videos on YouTube yesterday, and looking not good. Um, she talks about liking to run a lot and being physically fit because you know drag performances are no joke. They're very costuming. They're very physically demanding. So Trixie talks a lot about um, running um, to build up stamina for performance because they're wearing heels and heavy, you know, all of this stuff. And she's not the best. And even when um, interviewed or doing a video as Brian, not uh, talks about not being the best at being vulnerable mm-hmm. and not being the best about being emotionally connected to other people. Um and whatnot, released a video yesterday, the latest one on her channel, um, and talked about literally um, trying to outrun past trauma, mm-hmm. looking very, um, she said, you know, I haven't um, posted in a while, looking very like eating disorders, almost thin, Mm-hmm. Uh, very thin and um, talking about how I know I haven't been around for a while, been doing some stuff and uh, it's I've been all over the place. I've been behind on some of my drag gigs and on my social media and whatnot. And I've just been going through some stuff and then it was a get, get ready with me video and so she was talking about how and she alludes to releases a little bit of information, but still maintains a healthy boundary about past trauma mm-hmm. and talked about, has talked about um, over the years of her channel being the poorest family in this little tiny town in Northeast Wisconsin and having an abusive stepfather and being removed by child protection and living um, with his grandparents then as, as Brian and having this sense of hype, he talked about this, she talked about this yesterday, uh, talking about this paranoia that I'm going to be poor forever and I'm not going to have enough to eat because that's the way she grew up. And this constant state of hypervigilance. And he mentioned, she mentioned, um, Trixie mentioned that she had literally been trying to outrun her trauma. And she said, I think I've been doing a real good job for years because he's rich. Brian has made a fortune as Trixie through brand endorsements, monetized on YouTube, uh, tours throughout the country, um, book deals, cosmetics. I mean, Amelia has a hotel in Palm Springs, the Trixie Motel, um, is probably a multimillionaire many times over at this point, but was driven out of this sense of hypervigilance. And I don't want to ever starve again. I don't ever want to live in a trailer that's, you know, three feet wide and five feet long. And I don't ever want to live this way again. And so, and I think was utilizing it, not only the financial side to run after money, but utilizing work as a coping skill. And how many times have we seen that here at New Beginnings? Clients working, 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 volunteering, volunteering, making, making, creating, doing this and that and the other to numb and to push out those um, those memories and recollections and triggers. And he said, um, 
I crashed and burned the last few months. He's, she said, I think it finally caught up with me. I did a really good job of outrunning my trauma for many years, and I've made a fortune doing it. And all of my dreams have come true. And I, he said, I think I just crashed. And I think he politely went into a depression. He said, I didn't want to eat. I wasn't really eating. And um, so she's done a real good job as the character and then separately as, as Brian in, in other videos of kind of maintaining that boundary of like, I've been through some stuff, you all, but not too much detail. But I think that's a really good example that I just watched the video yesterday that Trixie said, listen, I have done a really good job of almost literally running away from my trauma and it's caught up with me now, I think. Oh, that's our nervous system. Mm-hmm. And that's the nervous system keeping us alive. Yeah. There's no shame. It's and I just... talk with clients and I know that you all do too. And I talk with the people that I supervise now. I've been supervising maybe three or four weeks now, this team. And I'm getting ready to have two brand new advocates um, to, to then train and teach. And I'm on them on the regular about trauma stewardship, self-care, flexing your time appropriately. I said, if you don't learn healthy boundaries, whatever that means, time boundaries, boundaries with clients, whatever, your body will stop you for you eventually if you don't do it for yourself. Absolutely. Um, And it's true. It's true. Um, Because the nervous system is... It's very wise. Your body is like a computer. Like We are (laughs) in overload and we are now shutting down. Our operating system no longer works and you will now sleep for 14 hours or you will now have a panic attack because we have to get this out somehow. Or our immune system fails us and we get exactly. sick. Or headaches or um, stomach um, aches and, you know, the body the body will stop. It will stop you for you if you don't learn or nobody's taught you or you refuse like I'm fine everything's fine I have two full-time jobs I go to school I raise a family I'm fine look at me until you're not fine and then you're really not fine if you don't sort of there was a, a time this is many many 20 some years ago when I was um, living in Louisville I was working for Child Protective Services, working about, you know, from 40 to 60 hours a week. I was going to grad school. With a caseload of, if you count the parents, probably about 60 to 70 a Yeah. An ungodly Um, amount. I was going to school full-time for my master's, which was every other weekend, from Friday evening till Sunday evening. And then on the weekends, I wasn't... um, In school, I was working a part-time job, you know, to try to live because back then we didn't make a lot of money. Not that we make a lot of money now, but Mm -hmm. it's just, it was like, and it was insane, right? And um, I remember when I finally made the decision to leave working for the cabinet, um, it was the best decision I ever made for my mental health Mm -hmm. and for my physical health. But I remember... I had to work through all of these negative thoughts that had been put into my head as far as 
you find one job, you stay in that job, you retire from that job, and you get a pension. Right, and you work at the factory or the company for 40 years. Forever. And then you retire. And I was like, I didn't want that. Mm-hmm. But I was like, how do I say no to my parents, right? Even though I was in my 20s, but still, because I didn't, I didn't know. And so I left, and I went to a much better, amazing job where I was told, I was told, I have 24 hours in the day to do my job. So you get to pick the hours in that 24 hours to do your eight hours. Okay. Challenge accepted. <laughs> and not only that, but I have seven days in a week to be able to do 40 hours. And I was like, I can, I, I can, I can do that. Like, I don't have to come like at 8 a.m. on, you know, Monday and say, you know, five. No, you, this is. And it was a very different kind of a setting, don't get me wrong, but still it's so much freedom. And I remember the first probably six to nine months I was there, I was working from like three to 11 or three to like seven, just some odd hours. And the rest of the time, I swear I slept. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't understand until many years later that because my body had said enough. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are depressed because we're working the hell out of ourselves, mm-hmm. sometimes because survival, mm-hmm. sometimes because we're outrunning trauma or memories or whatever, and then we're not getting the appropriate rest or the appropriate sleep. Mm-hmm. And then we're ending up depressed on top of that when if we can and have, you know, can and do and have the ability to get that appropriate rest and sleep, it will resolve some of those depression issues um, and allow you to actually work better or process trauma or work with a therapist or whatever. But yes, we're accustomed to, and again, this circles back, I think, a lot to, you know, the society as a whole and toxic capitalism and you the you have to survive and there is a culture of the more you work the better in a lot of ways and so that is true that is what was what ingrained do we do yeah, yeah. the you know. work ethic and getting pride out of your work and having your identity be entangled with your work and it's a whole like coming undone and it's mm-hmm. unlearning because um, we're of kind that, of in a DV relationship with our culture in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. I think we live in an abusive culture and we're abusing ourselves in some ways in terms of expectations of work and expectations of what we can humanly actually do. In a, you know, we're supposed to work and provide and we're supposed to, you know, for our heart health exercise every day. And we're supposed to do this. And uh, like, this is a lot, if I may make the domestic violence analogy with our culture, if I may make that, but it it seems abusive, like, and not healthy. It's funny because my husband, um, he's neurodivergent. And for the last like four or five years, he's been a great example at helping me understand that your job is simply just your job. Right. And like when I tell you, like he closes his computer at whatever time he does. And, you know, when it's time for his evaluation, it's all just like whatever the average. And I remember when we were first dating, I was like, well, don't you want to be above average? And he looked at me and he goes, what do you mean? I said, and with his job, your rating is tied to money, like a bonus. Okay. 
So if you're only just average or you're, you don't get as much right. money, and I'm like, you know, that, that could be a great vacation. He was like, it's just a job. And I'm like, what are you saying? What, what do you mean? It's, it's just a job. No, this is, this is who you are. <laughs> yes. And he's like, no, it's not. And I'm like, yes, it is. And he's like, no, it's not. Like, yes, it is. You know, it's just, but it was like, you know what? Like, and not that, I mean, I work hard. I mean, I love my job. And in the last seven years, I've become much better at my boundaries. I have too. And it's been a journey. It's been a journey with all kinds of boundaries. Because when I first started in this field, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Some of my boundaries are not healthy or beneficial to me or others. And that self-reflection was painful. Um, <laughs> you know, and then disentangling my identity from, because I love being an advocate, but it's not who I am. It's what I love to do. And I think that's a hard shift for some people to make. But I just told a person that I supervise, you know, when I close my computer and I put my um, paperweight down at the end of every day, I go home and I'm not an advocate anymore. I'm just here living my life. Um, but that's hard because sometimes it, our jobs fill such a void mm-hmm. and give meaning or escape from home that it's sometimes hard not to, to do that. Mm-hmm. I do want to share, but sitting here and I would pull up, thinking about it, I would pull it up, but my phone died. Oh, no. um, <laughs> but there was recently, um, I wanted to throw in a couple of domestic violence statistics that have been rattling in my head. I don't know if you all got much um, notice or whatever about it, but recently um, in Kentucky was a landmark study done on the amount of domestic violence in Kentucky. It's the first report that's been released. Um, and so the t- this, there's lots of other finer points to it, um, but I wanted to just give you all and listeners just an idea of the latest percentages in Kentucky. And they're the biggies. They're not the finer points of underserved populations or marginalized populations. It just gives really the broad overview. Um, According to the latest study from Kentucky that was released by the Justice Cabinet, in Kentucky of adults, a little over 45%, uh, 45.3 or 45.5% of women in Kentucky have experienced domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And a little over 35% of men in Kentucky have experienced it. And so we know then that the research likely bears out those that are in populations that identify um, in queer communities or um, certain populations of women, especially black women or black trans women um, and other individuals who may be undocumented or other populate individuals with uh, intellectual disabilities are likely, you know, experiencing just like sexual trauma, domestic violence at higher rates. So this is a, if you think of like, okay, I'm sitting in my church or a movie theater or with my friends, a group of friends or in a restaurant, and you count off every third male-identified person and almost every other female-identified person in this state. That's a lot of people. That is a hell of a lot of people. That 
is a public health crisis. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so that's one of the most important things that um, Oasis and other DV shelters and agencies and, um, you know, uh, collaborative partners like New Beginnings or law enforcement or whoever during, you know, every day of the year, but especially during October, getting some of these statistics out because it, it's mind-blowing and it should blow people's minds in a bad way. Just like during January, stalking month, stalking and DV go hand in hand. Yes, they do. Um, January is stalking month, October is DV month, and then April is sexual assault month. And the statistics for all of those should blow people's minds and keep them awake at night until they do something. Yeah. For the prevention or for the self-reflection so we don't pass along the intergenerational effects of this because this is a snowball avalanche rolling downhill and we're trying to stop it because it is, you know, like in the pandemic, that's some PTSD from talking about that, but, you know, how we were mitigating the damage, the social distancing the immunizations, the mRNA research, and oh my God, we got a green like this, and this is on a fast track. We've got to get these immunizations because this is a problem. People are dying. People are dying from DV too, immediately, sometimes at the hands of somebody, and slowly over time through the autoimmune or the lack of access to care. This is a fatal public health crisis. That we're just like, yeah, that's really bad. DV's bad. That's a shame. Or sexual yeah. trauma in April or stalking in January. Like, yeah, this stuff really stinks. This is bad. Somebody needs to do something about that. But one of the celebrities, Lily Tomlin maybe, um, has been attributed of saying, well, I looked around at this stuff, whatever she was referring to, and I thought, somebody needs to do something about this. And then I realized I am somebody. Yeah. I am somebody who can do something about this. And that's part of that culture change yeah. is making everybody like everybody in Kentucky's a mandatory reporter. Somehow our culture, the norm needs to be not only the bystander prevention, but I need to do something about my own self because I am way unhealthy or my boundaries are terrible or I don't want this to pass along to my children, so I'm going to do, we need to shift the culture in those ways, too. So we don't have that massive numbers anymore. Well, I think that was an excellent call to action, Terry, and thank you for really wrapping this up with those very powerful statistics, because those are some much-needed numbers for our audience to hear. Mm -hmm. I mean, the numbers are staggering. And I don't want anyone to suffer, certainly, by thinking about it. But these are numbers that should concern people as much as a pandemic. This is this is endemic to the United States. This is endemic to Kentucky. And it should be, it should make people lose sleep to the point that they actually do something. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in the most positive, supportive way, although it sounds a bit negative. But sometimes we need to get our heads out of the sand, like you mentioned earlier, because what we're doing now is not working. You've definitely given all of us 
a lot to think about. Yeah. And um, in the details section of the podcast, I'll list resources mm -hmm. uh, for people so they can click and go to wherever they need to. Um, and thank you so much for being up. Oh, you're podcast. welcome. It was a joy. It's always like coming home to new beginnings because I've never <laughs> really gone anywhere since 2011. I've been here. Um, but if I may just very briefly leave listeners with, yes, there are a lot of staggering statistics. Yes, it's a public health crisis. However, hope and help mm. are very real. Yes. And we see it every day in the clients that we work with. This is not, um, the end all be all. You went through trauma and now your fate is sealed to be miserable and unhealthy and whatever forever. It's not so. So I just want to leave with that sense of hope and resilience. Um, there are providers out here that um, whether it's New Beginnings or Oasis or others, all listeners have to do is make that first step, a phone call, an email, reaching out. We'll, we'll meet you halfway. And you can do it, and there's help and hope, and we're here to help you. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, healing mm -hmm. is possible. Mm -hmm. It is. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today and tuning in. And as always, you can change the world to live just by listening today. Just by listening today. Well, we've made it to the end of our episode. We want to thank you for listening. We hope you'll take something you heard today and use it to change the world tomorrow. We wanted to thank our music producer, Seth Hedges, from Uriah Wild Media. His website is in the show description. Also, a big shout out to Rodney Newton, our technical advisor. See you next time. This project was supported by grant number VOCA 2020 Green River 26, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet by the U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you.